0: Welcome to the Cast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Crock Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, George Lopez, the Reverend Theodore Hesburgh Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies, talks with three other scholar practitioners about how to teach peace studies in areas where there is active conflict or where conflict has just ended. This episode's guests include Kroc Institute Visiting Research Fellow Josefina Ekavaria Alvarez, Father Elias Omandi Opongo, Director of the Hakima Institute of Peace Studies and International Relations, and Father Matthew Pagan, Vice-Chancellor of the Catholic University of South Sudan. This episode was recorded during the Building Sustainable Peace Conference that took place at the Kroc Institute during November 2019.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Crockcast. I'm George Lopez, the Reverend Theodore M. Hesburgh, CSC, Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies here at the Kroc Institute. And I'm joined by a couple of esteemed colleagues today for a conversation about the challenges of studying peace and training peace builders in zones of active conflict in which colleges and universities are becoming increasingly relevant as peacebuilding actors. I'm joined by Elias Amondi Apongo, SJ, director of the Hakima Institute of Peace Studies and International Relations at Hakima University College in Nairobi. Elias is also a 2004 graduate of the Kroc Institute's master's program in international peace studies. Welcome back, Elias. Thank you very much, George. We're also joined by Josefina Echeverri Alvarez, who is here at the Kroc Institute this semester as a visiting research fellow. She's the co-director of the Research Center for Peace and Conflict and senior lecturer at the University of Innsbruck. She also is co-coordinator and editor of a marvelous volume of their experiences in Innsbruck in helping to build peace studies in an elicitive framework at a variety of colleges and universities in conflict zones. Welcome, Josefina.
2: Thank you very much, George. Great to be here.
1: Well, it's good to join us for talking about this increasingly important topic. We know that peace studies is a growing academic field around the world with its different variants and exciting themes that are trying to keep pace with the changes and development of the field. But it's a particular challenge to see peace studies expand and adapt in the places where there's active violence ongoing or where a country is coming out of an existing war. So I thought to start with, it would be good to hear from each of you about how you would describe the situation in your country or the region you do most of your work and how it affects, from your point of view, the urgencies of doing peace studies education.
3: Thank you very much, George. I would say Kenya, where our college is located, has experienced all kind of both local or national and regional effects of conflict within the continent. The most recent has been um, violent extremism that has emerged from Somalia and with some terrorist networks in northern part of Kenya in the frontiers with Somalia has led to some recruitment of young people into the Al-Shabaab militia group. And so that has made us reflect seriously around the issues of religion, and terrorism or extremism, and all the factors around it. And we've done a couple of research on that and also integrated that into our course. The other is just the the constant political transitions that Kenya, South Sudan, and other neighboring countries have impacted on Kenya. And even Kenya as a country, we've, we've had constitutional transitions, we've had political transitions, we've had political coalitions. And... In order to address this within Peace Studies, we do have every first Friday of the month what we call the Peace Forums. And the Peace Forums just keep us up to date on the state of the field as far as social justice issues is concerned. So I would maybe highlight those two to be really critical. And also they bring us in a civil society to help us know what is really important and happening on the ground. And then we bring in our own students to engage with that. And then the other element also is the fact that we do link our students to civil society groups, religious, church, and other groups that are involved in peace work. And they get in touch with the latest things on the ground.
2: Yeah, I think that is the urgency that we feel in a lot of post-agreement settings. We have worked, and you were mentioning this elicitive curriculum development manual that we produce at the University of Innsbruck, where we bring together experiences in countries like Georgia, Colombia, Ethiopia. We're starting to work in Iraq, Brazil, and Cambodia. What we find is that peace and conflict studies curriculum and the programs and the courses that people develop, they develop them because there is a real need, especially in different educational settings for both students and teachers to develop peacemaking practices to understand a little bit more mediation. So even if you're teaching, let's say, history, if you're teaching social sciences, you still have a room where the people who are present in the room, including the teacher, have gone through various experiences of violence. So the conflict is always in the room. So what peace and conflict studies in those settings provide are not only the tools, but also what I would like to call in an elicitive way is also to cultivate the qualities of peace work that are not just technical, intellectual and cognitive, but they are mostly relational. Is how can we, in a way, overcome these cycles of violence? How can we turn the cycles of violence into virtual cycles? How can we move away from violence in our daily relationships?
1: You've each mentioned certain contacts with civil society, being involved in the dialogue that you're doing, and I guess would consider more formal peace education. In your experience, is the decision to engage more civil society? distinctive about the peace studies approach or is it happening throughout your society that the gap between, let's say, the college and university as an institution and civil society being different kinds of institutions, is that gap closing in post-conflict or post-violent frameworks?
3: Yes. I think that gap is gradually closing and I experienced that directly during the the transitional justice process in Kenya. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was very much a civil society-driven affair. And it brought it closer to us because all our studies had always focused much more on the older transition justice processes from Latin America and then into South African experience, Sierra Leone, Liberia. And when it happened in Kenya with our monthly peace forums, we were able to invite the vice chair of the truth commission to come and talk to our students and say these are the key issues we are facing this is the real situation on the ground and that really has helped us to bridge that particular gap with the uh, civil society groups the other is some of the reports that have emerged either from human rights groups or even from the civil society groups themselves. Sometimes they may lack in depth in terms of analysis, but they give you the on the ground daily experience, which as academics now you can use it to uh, develop some other theories and academic engagement around it and even to just update yourself. So I think in that whole sense of on the ground contact conversation, It has been very helpful. The frustration has been on the part of civil society with academics that the civil society wants to move fast and find the solutions. Academics want to analyze and get into the depth of the issues, but sometimes the urgency for action tend to leave the academics behind. (laughs) Yeah, and then we catch up somehow later when things cool down. But that's just the part that we can't keep up with the pace of the civil society sometimes.
2: Yeah, and I think what you're saying is something that I have also found very often in Colombia, that this linkage between the scholars and the practitioners is extremely productive. And sometimes they have different rhythms. And I think that for us, when we think about curriculum development and when we're making decisions about which courses to include, which didactics, what should be the goal overall. I think it's important to plan spaces for communication where civil society can enter our our educational facilities so that it's not just something that happens on the side, but that we're constantly learning from people on the ground. In places like Colombia, where you have such a strong activist movement, we have a very strong many different associations for the rights of victims. We have very strong feminist associations and women's associations. What we have is that many of those activists are our students. After the last process of reincorporation, there have been an amazing amount of university, also faith-based universities like Haveriano, which is, which are chains of Jesuit-based universities that exactly tackled the needs, the educational needs of former combatants, both male and female. And I think that this is what we are very much aware in post-agreement settings and is that we have a responsibility, Mm -hmm. that we as academics, we need to look at society, open our eyes and say, this is us. We have ethics committed to the world. We're not turning our backs and, you know, just diving into our scholarship without engaging with others. But our ethical commitment is with what is happening on the ground. And it has to be an ethical commitment in my opinion based on the values of nonviolence.
3: I just had a question for, just finish So if you allow no, me. No, no, this is great. Yeah, okay, yeah. In terms of the activists, you said some of your students have been activists in the civil society. I don't know that you face the same frustration sometimes we do, where the frustration is actually on the part of the students who fail. With the experience they are bringing into the program, they would like to see more practice-based approach, or they want to see university engaged in social action that they're so passionate about. And they say, this is where peace studies should be, in action, in change. So I don't know that there was, especially now in Colombia, with this heightened post-conflict reconciliation aspect, whether this is, you see student experiencing the same frustration?
2: I think so. And I think that at least especially as I have had the great opportunity to work both, let's say, with my Colombia background. I understand the context. I come from that context. But I'm also outside. I also work in Europe. I also work in North America and in the UK, which is now, as we know, not part of Europe. You know, the Brexit, so, <laughs> yes. yeah. so I yeah, think yeah. that what we have tried to do is to really create cooperation networks where we're able to support also our colleagues in Colombia and in post-agreement settings and give them new energies and, in a way, be there because those constant demands of the students and of the context sometimes drain away your energies.
1: We are also joined by Father Matthew Pagan, the Vice Chancellor of the Catholic University of South Sudan in Juba, South Sudan. Welcome, Matthew.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Let me begin with the question, in what way has peace studies been responsive to the situation that's unfolding in your country? Is there a new urgency for peace studies given the real events of trying to end violence on the ground?
4: Peace studies, in fact, the events in South Sudan is what really motivated us to begin peace studies because we saw that from the many disciplines we saw that we lack leaders who have really the sense of having peace in the society and who can be leaders for peace and security and stability in their communities. So we thought that beginning uh, peace studies, we really respond because we will have most of the students in our university, by the time they finish their studies, they already appointed ministers. Some are commissioners, some become even governors. We thought that it is important that we begin peace studies so that at least there will be some among the leaders in South society in South Sudan, who will be able to have these concepts of having peace as a priority and the most important thing that they can have for their community and to work
1: for it. A second question might be, you describe this need and the urgency and the connections. That seems to be a closer connection between the university and civil society than many other academic ventures might have.
4: Yeah, it is true. In fact, my background, I come from the justice and peace work myself. And that is really what motivated me to begin the institute in the university. I saw that there's this gap between the academic studies that we have and the need for peace in the society, in our society at large, And so we, we saw it as our mission as a university to begin the peace work, peace studies, But also that must influence the life of the people in society, because peace is very close to the people's life. And it can be academic, but it is something that appears in people's life. And that's why we began it.
1: You know, each of you described this linkage between civil society and the academy, and we rightly know that Northern and Western Peace Studies has finally found a better way to interact with peace studies developments in what's called, for lack of a better name, the South that our concepts or approaches, while very similar, do have different contexts. And and that means some substantial things in the classroom. I also, as I'm listening to you, and struck by the ways we still struggle in United States Peace Studies programs, when a particular program might want to engage in constructive dialogue or circle discussions or restorative justice kinds of things that are happening between police and their community, where there are some that would say, wait a minute, the place of the academy is to be neutral, not to be over-involved. I don't share that view myself, but I know that that's always been a struggle for some programs. Does the notion of neutrality at all come up for what you've seen in your own work, that there's a point at which Yes, we're involved and we're in dialogue with the actors, but we're not yet going to take a position in our own program because of whatever. I'm curious. Or maybe even that's not an issue. You tell me whether neutrality is an issue from a, either an academic or a practitioner way as it relates to your programs.
4: I think in my opinion, any academic work should lead to a social change, a change in the society, a change in the community. That's really my, my basic basic belief. Our studies, our peace studies, necessarily, if it is to succeed, it has to succeed by the influence it will have in the change that it brings in the society, in the change it brings in the students that we bring and the influence they will have in the work that they will do. So the equation of neutrality here, I think, is a little bit of a problem for me because I will only be neutral if I can be able to see the influences I mean, the good things that come out from the studies that I have, the academic work that we have in the society, the the fruits of it in the society.
3: I agree. The Kenyan perspective is more or less the same experience that given that link with the civil society, with the social justice issues, our program is very much social justice oriented informed by the Catholic social teachings, but at the same time with a great desire to see that there is some change within the society. And Mm. and that's the earlier frustration I was talking about when some of the students who've been very active in social change activities want to come to peace study so that they can deepen their experiences and to gain more skills of engagement whether it's at the level of analysis, advocacy, or alternative dispute resolution, they would like to use those skills to bring the social change. I think what is even much more important in talking about issues around neutrality is also to pay attention to the political scene. And I'll, I'll give one practical example. In 2014, we organized an international conference on transitional justice. And at the time, both the Kenyan president and the vice president were indicted by the ICC, International Criminal court. The call was for them to answer to charges of 2008 post election violence, which had implicated the two. The case was let alone thrown out. But the sensitivity around that issue in 2014, when the case was still on, everybody asked why are you organizing a course like this? You're taking sides. And I said, no, this is an international conference, and we are going to get experiences from across many countries. And we did get overwhelming response, 350 participants. And it ended up being a very positive engagement. In fact, government sent representatives and the African Union and the UNDP, there are moments within especially in political transition, that can be very sensitive. But I think we need to be part of the discourse as well.
2: Yeah, and I think that in the most recent times, we have the example of Colombia where there was this referendum where people were asked in October 2016 if they wanted to sign the peace agreement or not. And the universities were faced with a very important question, is how can we contribute to what we call the pedagogies for peace? Meaning, should we just encourage people to go and vote or should we encourage people to go and vote for the yes? And this was an incredibly rich discussion, I guess, for peace and conflict studies in the country. Is it do we just encourage democratic participation or do we encourage social change in a direction that we want? And there was a split. Many universities did not take any sides in the referendum openly, but said that their pedagogies for peace was to inform people. Unfortunately, very little formation and a lot of information about peace, but that they were not going to take sides. In that moment, we created an alliance, an international alliance between or among universities in Europe, in the UK, and in Colombia. And we actually tried to encourage people not just to vote, but to understand the difference in the consequences of voting for the yes or for the no, which I think that this is what I wanted to say before in relation to the commitment of nonviolence. I think that it is not the same to vote for war than to vote for peace, in my opinion. And I think that this is where the question of neutrality, I would spin it a little bit using the language of Christopher Mitchell and say, I think universities need to be safe spaces for different political views. I think that this is what we need to make sure that we provide that people who were detractors in this case of the peace agreement and people who were supporting the peace agreement both feel that in a peace and conflict studies setting is precisely the space where they can discuss and have a conversation about their arguments, but also their position and their emotions in relation to a particular text. So I think that precisely our commitment to the Pedagogies for Peace has to be to invite those opposing views that maybe on the street, they fight with each other, but in our classrooms, they should feel safe that their voice is being respected and that we're really making an effort to extend our empathy to all points of views.
3: So just, just to say something that I don't want to lose it, uh, universities are safe spaces for dialogue and conversation. We've experienced that with our monthly peace forum when we invite civil society groups and religious leaders. And and we always try to bring the different positions on the round table discussion. And it has really, really helped a lot because as you know, the civil society field is so divided sometimes, especially when issues of neutrality come in. And if you're discussing a case like a referendum, you'll need to bring people who give you the two views, other than just take one particular view. And and that people have really appreciated. Whereas if it was being hosted by civil society X, people will immediately know, oh no, they are too radical. They're already taking this particular position. But in the university setting, they fail. They're much freer to dialogue.
1: I'm reminded as you talk about this this way with safe spaces that when we had some intense involvement across our three institutes, Kellogg, Croc and the Center for Civil and Human Rights, a good grant from Ford Foundation Latin America in 1997 to 2002, a very bad time in Colombia. A number of the Colombian academics who came to us had experienced violence. One young man came and uh, still needed surgery for a bullet removal in his leg because Nacional in particular had been a site of violence, attacks on academics and various difficulties. What's your own experience in how difficult it is to make a university, particularly, let's say, under conditions of continuing violence, to make it seen as a safe space. Or the greater the violence, the greater the likelihood at universities, anyway. I, how does it seem, you know? Or now, eighteen years, thankfully, from that position, we we saw of, of our colleagues in Columbia. But what's your own experience?
4: We are still navigating in still difficult situations. Just to give you an example, recently we were, uh, our university hosts like once every month, uh, what we call public lectures. We used to have lectures around the peace processes in South Sudan, the implementation and all of this. But then it became a bit sensitive because every time we have to do this, we need to go to security organs, get the permission for people coming to the campus and all of this. And then they will send their person to attend. Recently, in fact, we were having a workshop on uh, doing a strategic studies, I mean, a strategic program for our institute planning and all of this, Justice and Peace Institute. And they sent someone who really disrupted for the first time. We never had that before. And then the people who come even, when we, you are delivering, you have to be careful of what you say. Or some people who are even summoned and the question about what they said during the public lectures. So that is still a problem. But still, the university will have to do its best to create these spaces still, because we cannot surrender that, no, the situation is not like this. We continue to create spaces for people to dialogue on their different opinions and somehow try to negotiate with these forces that, okay, this is what you want. We
3: concede to them a bit, but they also have to open up some, some spaces which is there. I also see variations because we get students from within the region and sometimes students who've experienced first hand conflict tend to have different perspective and opinion. And if we are not sensitive to that, it can really lead to wrong pedagogical approach mm-hmm. and to classify, for example, certain countries. One student once told me, and I say, Okay, these are the list of eleven countries in Africa in conflict with DRC, Somalia, and so say no 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 DRC is not in in a state of conflict. It's just in a small location in the eastern part and please, we need to review these ways of... And especially for students who've experienced first-hand violence or conflict. Cameroon is one recent case also. Some of our students from Cameroon are very sensitive now to the whole Anglophone, Francophone issues. And even yourself as a professor, you need to get into those sensitivities of how you present that particular issue. And trauma, which we've not dealt with much in peace studies is an area now we are gaining more and more conscious with some of our students who could have been traumatized by situations of conflict before.
1: Yeah, And that consciousness about trauma also parallels what seems to be in neuroscience and psychology increased attention to this in a variety of research contexts. And it's a good example, I think, of the way that real observations of the difficulty on the ground is driving the way the disciplines begin to examine things. In my own country, of course, some of this is seen in the PTSD of returning service people from multiple tours in theaters like Afghanistan, and Iraq, and rising suicide rates. But it's also an increased consciousness, I think, in the findings of the field of what it means to live within conditions of fear continually and to live in violent zones and one's ability to adapt then to a new normal of relative peace thereafter. The Western notion that the war is over, rejoice, let us now create a life and go forward is not a possibility for many people who've experienced this. And I think that's for the first time, it's coming home to US classrooms and communities, but it's something you, know, you all have experienced in your own locales and in other countries, for sure.
4: Just a comment on trauma. One of the, you know, in, especially in peace negotiations, you can get uh, reparations, compensation on many things, but nothing on the issues of trauma and psychosocial uh, support to people. One time we asked about it, they said, oh no, you cannot quantify it. How do you quantify trauma? How do you put it in a mat- matrix of implementation <laughs> of a peace agreement? So this is maybe one thing also that peace studies needs to look at.
2: Yeah, in our experience in, at the University of Innsbruck in Austria, what we have tried to do is through a, a scheme of scholarships and are very much aware of the necessity of having an international and intercultural, interreligious classroom, so we try to bring students from all different paths and from many different backgrounds. And we are very aware that many of our students have gone through different traumatic experiences. We tend to assume that those traumatic experiences in relation to violence derive from context of political violence. But I think that many of them, and as we know now, through thanks to a lot of feminist research, for example, gender-based violence is not just in political violence situations but definitely statistically the most dangerous place for a woman is her home. And I think that we need to be aware that even if they come from, at least on paper, this, as you were mentioning now in in the U.S. context, they come from maybe countries of the global north, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are not scarred. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no trauma there. And I think that, as you were saying, we have learned that going through this that we need to be ready in our classrooms as facilitators, as teachers, as professors, to be able to not only deal with those traumatic experiences, but maybe a flashback of those traumatic experiences. Maybe in different simulations and classroom exercises, we are able to learn who we are, which are those conflict stories that make us who we are, how do we react in the face of someone going through one of those experiences. And I think that for us, the classroom is definitely a safe space in that sense, in the sense that we are able to train what very likely will happen on the ground. And is that the peace builders and is that the people involved in peace work tend to have... They're themselves a biography where it's very likely that they have gone through those experiences. So what we try to do when I meant a safe space, as Father Matthew was saying, of course, I'm talking about security conditions that are real, that are there, and that we cannot minimize, we need to be able to give certain guarantee to our students when we invite them into our universities, that they're going to be secure, not just safe. But what I mean with safe spaces is really a space where we are prepared as teachers and facilitators to have a community of learning where those experiences are welcomed.
1: And I think one of the things we've learned from those of you who have come to us from your own countries to work here at the Kroc Institute, either as students or fellow researchers and educators, is we need to be more serious about both the training for and the ethic of self-care, of the importance if you're going to try to live out and try to work professionally for a couple of decades as a peace builder in situations of violence. How do you recognize certain signs of depression and other things in yourself? What should you do under these kinds of conditions? I used to use it just as a trite phrase uh, years ago, you know, get thee to the gym and have some release. But I learned very quickly from my students, it's got to be much more serious than that. It's just not only having a release, but having a framework for understanding why and how you need the release and everything from yoga to critical self-reflection to whatever spiritual sense, however you may define it, becomes part of your core. So you you have a sense of, of place in the world to go, even when things around you in the world are collapsing or or being seemingly immovable <laughs> to any of the notions of justice and peace that you nurture. I wonder if I might raise the issue of Many of our listeners, not all of them in this worldwide croc cast, will be from northern countries. And we educate the privileged often in peace. And it's good that so many students come our way that want to be part of struggles for peace and justice beyond their own communities. But what should we on faculty, what should our programs of the North be more critically aware of from your experience? That can increase as we teach the privileged, if you will, if we're engaged in the pedagogy of of the North, Mm -hmm. trying to be in honest communication and helpful communication with conflict zones, what would you advise us to make sure our peace programs or our own teaching addresses?
2: Well, I would say that based on our experience in various contexts, and as we were talking about this manual where we support faculty and universities in places like Georgia, where you say, the first question is, is it an active conflict? Is it a frozen conflict? It is an occupied territory. I mean, just the very fact that we are very aware that there is trauma, that there has been a history of political Authority there that where you have very difficult neighbors, etc. You have identity politics and so on. I think that what we have learned is in many different contexts is that the diversity needs to be intentional in the room. So I would say that even as I was telling you before about Austria which is definitely one of the most privileged countries in the world based on many different indexes, not just income, but also satisfaction and comfort and environmental things and so on, and transportation. I mean, it's really an amazing country with a high standard of living. So how do you bring the world of peace studies and peace and conflict transformation to a place like that? And again, I think that intentionally the programs need to make sure that we have diversity in the rooms, whether it's by scholarship programs by going into the communities? Because as you were saying, we're talking about the global north and there is a global south in the north. That is for sure. So how can we invite that diversity in our student body, but also in the faculty body? How do we make sure that the epistemologies that we're using in peace studies also reflect diversity? And that starts with the types of literature that we use in our curriculum. So in a way, we know that we can have a diverse student body, especially if we have the resources for that. We can have a diverse faculty body and that we have diversity in the content of what we teach. I think that those are three parts of that triangle that can be helpful in that direction. Thank you.
3: You find that largely, and if I may talk for the African context here, a lot of what is published within the continent doesn't seem to make its way to the north. And the literature and even in my own studies here at Croc were privileged to get people like yourself and John Paul Ledrac, who already had a lot of ground experience or even contact with the um, people within the high levels of peace work. But in most cases, the literature from the South doesn't penetrate that much into the curriculum. And it could be a deliberate effort to see how some of that literature can be brought into the program. You won't see it if you search for it in the conventional portals you know in in the journals or in the uh, in the libraries and it's just unfortunate that some of those local publications don't get the visibility that they should i think is one big project that we can consider in future between CROC and southern institutions just tell us what has been helpful for you produced locally that we can share with you in the south because the the northern literature is very easily available just go to amazon and and i'll find it the marketability is very clearly designed but then for the southern literature we need to just find a way of making that even if it means getting the uh, digital publications out that's one easy way of doing it and to encourage our publishers to do the same as well
4: just to add something but I, I agree very much with what i agree very much with what father father elia said and also what she said before what i would like to add is just to to encourage you on to build on for example during the institute that we had here in 2014 we had program with the bahari university in khartoum with juba university and i think such collaborations they should intensify such that the faculties, you know, it was not only joining these southern institutions with the North, but also joining us even in the South. So I would think that if such programs can continue to very much bring us to within into the context of the various various institutions in the continents.
1: I wonder as we close if you have any other final observations on our what was our our sort of larger topic and that is how how peace studies is changing and needing to adapt and the dynamic of peace studies in violent zones or in communities coming out of violence. Any final observations that any of us want to share? And I'll begin. One of the great blessings of my own life over the last decade has been the ability to accompany a bit the development of the program at University of Cartagena, where you know, my viewpoint in earlier in life was the great contribution of Nels Borda and the, the notion of participatory action research coming out of thinking and conferencing in Cartagena and what that meant overall for peace studies, but then to be invited and work with faculty there in the changes in their social work program, where it was going to become a master of social work and conflict resolution. And a big active program in the field dimension in an area that had been very seriously involved in the conflict. And to watch the development of that program now it it approaches almost its 10th year. What contributions it's done in its own area and also how it's penetrated other parts of the university that the university has the possibilities of being an active change agent for commitments to nonviolence, for commitments even if you have certain political disagreements about the need to go forward together as citizens working in peace. And it's just been a a great learning experience and a privilege for me. I would almost hope that almost any peace studies professor in the United States could have this kind of benefit of an experience because it enriches our teaching so much, but it also it finally puts us in touch with the real program development on the ground. And those programs would develop without our accompaniment, I'm sure, but it's been a privilege, at least from my experience, to be able to do that, as well as to be with some of these other good people on our panel in November of 2017 when Elias hosted for us a meeting of 70. African academics who are already doing great peace studies programming, but we could get in touch with what was going on on a variety of East African countries' program development in their own context, and many of them from Catholic universities, bringing this issue of Catholic social thinking and its tie to peace and justice. What final words do others of you have?
2: Well, going back a little bit to what you were saying, we assume in our master's program in Innsbruck that... The experiences that we make as human beings also make us who we are as peace workers <laughs> It's a pretty obvious statement if you say it like this. But the idea is how can we really in our curriculum, in our academic work, really create experiences that make us better peace workers, that make us better peace builders. What I think we have learned is that we need to engage the whole human being. And in our curriculum, what we try to do is not only engage our students at an intellectual level, but also at an embodied level, in a spiritual level. And we do that through a lot of simulations. So I think that didactically, this is what we also see on the ground. We see people on the ground doing you know, following elections, doing uh, election observation. We see them in humanitarian forces doing a lot of catastrophe relief, doing a lot of applied peace work, and they are fully embedded there. So I think that our university programs should be also receiving that more seriously and saying which type of epistemologies are necessary. Well, we need epistemologies that focus on relationships and not only on concepts, for example. Something that we have very likely uh, have learned also from the work that you have done here at the Kroc Institute in strategic peace building. So I think that we need to involve the whole human being in our classes because peace is an experience. Peace is a lived experience. It's not just an idea. So we got to take full advantage of, of our potential as human beings.
3: When I was coming in the course of this conference, one of the mornings, an Uber driver asked me, so what's all this peace conference about? Because you <laughs> just picked people. What are people talking about peace? And I started explaining, you know, post-conflict. And, and he said, I hope you're also talking about family. And just kind of took me aback and said, why are you saying that? He said, well, if it doesn't begin in the family, you never get it right. So I think in relation, again, to what you had said earlier, that family or homes have become places of violence for women. And also the fact that we need to bring peace studies down to really the COVID, which is the human person. And I think we've not done that well, even from my own perspective at Ekima University, we've not done that well in bringing it down to personal transformation or to dealing with people's trauma or to people's anxieties in just in the daily living and it may be very helpful i think if we reconsider looking our own curriculum into bringing it down to those daily experiences of people and helping people through a process of trauma for example or of dealing directly with their own personal transformation It may be helpful we still don't have the skill and doesn't sound academic enough but it's something that that I'd like to see more in the peace studies world.
4: I see also that there's a lot of demand that is coming to us now, the peace study institutions. Just to give you an example, recently the South Sudan National Dialogue came to us and said the Institute for Justice and Peace will implement the reconciliation aspect of the National Dialogue. So among the institutions, you are selected. So we, we feel challenged. And every now and then, if there's reference to issues of human rights, issues of security, training, and all of this, they always come and say, ah, oh, you have the Justice and Peace Institute, you go to it, you have the Institute for Peace and Development Studies, University of Juba. And so many people are going there, you know, and you know the people who are coming, some of them are the army, officers in the army, those are working in security, those in the government, you know, they come there so because they want to understand, they want to change. In the, in the, so I see that there's a challenge coming to us, a positive challenge in that sense.
1: Well, I want to thank each of you for this marvelous dialogue. I hope that our listeners feel not only informed, but also empowered to engage these issues some more. So thanks to each of you, and thank you to our audience.
0: You've been listening to The Crockcast, Peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.